0: Um, And several weeks ago, Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry reintroduced uh, COVID notifications for school exposures, saying the health authorities would let everyone know in a timely manner to ease anxiety among parents, students, and teachers.
1: So as of today, the Regional Health Authorities will start posting K-12 school potential exposure events on their websites and there will be a link at the BC CDC website for all of the, the Regional Health Authorities. This is similar to what we did last year. What we aren't going to be able to do this year and what was not effective in terms of spreading information or um, supporting um, transmission or decreasing transmission in schools was sending out a letter to all of the schools if there was an exposure event.
0: That's Dr. Bonnie Henry. And since then, more and more parents are publicly uh, expressing how frustrated they are with how long it's taking for the schools or the health authorities Uh, to let them know when someone at school has COVID. A Maple Ridge mom told Global News that there was an exposure that happened at her daughter's school, Fairview Elementary, Uh, between September 22nd and 24th. Parents didn't get notified about it until October 1st. So uh, is this working? And with me now is uh, Elizabeth Costa from the BC Safe Schools Coalition. Hi, Elizabeth. How are you? Happy Thanksgiving, by the way. Happy day to you too. Right. So let let let's talk about uh, about this. It it sh- sounds like something that should be quite simple. Um,
1: in in fact, I believe that it is simple, and the models are already out there. Uh, there's the BC School COVID Tracker, created by two phenomenal moms who uh, work tirelessly on a daily basis to update it, and a dad that created the Exposure Watch. Um, So three human beings who are not getting paid created incredible um, exposure notifications that contain more information and more timely information than what we're getting from the government.
0: So what needs to happen?
1: Have the government put their arrogance aside for a moment. Actually look at what's working in terms of the parents and the teachers being able to make informed decisions, communicate with one of the mothers that does the BC school COVID tracker. Nothing gets posted unless a parent directly communicates with them, as I did in the past, and provides proof of the positive uh, COVID test for their child. Um, and they protect your anonymity too. They would never post your personal information. Um I wanted to bring this to your attention. I spoke with that parent who is part of the Hastings Elementary community. And let me just read, uh, because she went and compared the information that have been posted, okay? So there's four exposures on the school tracker, which is the BC school COVID tracker, uh, by the two volunteer moms that I was telling you about. And there's zero on the Vancouver Coastal Health website. And within the parent community, there's already eight as of yesterday night. But if you go to the VCH site uh, that's provided by the government, there's zero. So parents tomorrow morning, with the information of zero provided by the government, instead of sending uh, a child to the school with eight positive cases, they would reevaluate the situation and make their own safety personal decision do i want my child exposed to other a class that has eight exposures or two classes that had eight positive exposures
0: well thank you so much elizabeth costa from the bc safe schools coalition uh, hopefully we can get this straightened out cuz it seems like such a simple thing thank you elizabeth Thank you so much. Well, happy Thanksgiving Day Monday to you. This is Martin Strong in for Mike Smith today. And uh, more and more people getting those electric assist bicycles, the e-bikes. And they're a lot of fun. Perfect for Vancouver when you need a little help getting up those hills. But they range from just a small motor to help with those hills to a bicycle that can hit a maximum speed of 32 k's an hour. And there are motorized stand-up scooters and skateboards used for commuting as well. And that's left a lot of questions about what these motor-assisted vehicles need in terms of license, registration, insurance. So we have an expert. Kyla Lee is a lawyer with Acumen Law. They specialize in driving laws. Hi, Kyla. How are you? Happy Thanksgiving
2: happy thanksgiving
0: to you thanks for having me yeah so let let's talk there there is a recent bc court decision but uh, people are still kind of confused and and it sort of seems to me now uh, that if if a bike has pedals but a motor as well it still counts as an e-bike how does this all work
2: uh, well, yes and no. Um, so if a bike has pedals and a motor, and it also meets a whole host of other requirements, including wattage requirements, uh, uh, wheel diameter requirements, all sorts of different technical specifications, then it may be considered a motor-assisted cycle instead of uh, just the other sort of categories of e-bikes, and you may not have to have insurance or a driver's license
0: in order to use it right so so when when does it become something that you need a license for
2: essentially uh, if it is uh, over a certain weight uh, if it like essentially that would make it look like it's something that couldn't be um, propelled ordinarily by human power uh, if it's capable of going over 32 kilometers an hour uh, if the pedals aren't used uh, all the time in the operation of the motor so essentially the motor assists with the pedaling, if the wheel diameter is less than uh, 320 millimeters, I believe, (laughs) um, and if it's less than 500 watts.
0: (laughs) Well, in your work uh, at Acumen Law, what's the fastest electronic bike that you could still pedal, but what was the fastest speed it hit?
2: Well, I mean, I've had ones that were going, I think, up to like sixty kilometers an hour. Uh, they weren't being pedaled at the time, of course, <laughs> they've been taken off. But, uh, but they were the the people believed that they were motor-assisted cycles and that they were entitled to drive them, which was not true. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> and so, so just. Pedaling back, sorry for that. Um, uh, so, so all those sort of e-bikes that, like my sister just bought, you know, they, they have the little motor on the thing. There's no worries about that. They're just like a regular bicycle.
2: Yeah. I mean, if you have one that like looks like a bicycle and acts like a bicycle, but also has a small motor to assist you in the operation, then you're probably in the clear. And like, I mean, using common sense, if it looks like a bike and it acts like a bike, but it also has a tiny motor um, that you can engage by using the pedals, then that's okay. If it looks like a motorcycle or a scooter and it acts like a motorcycle or a scooter, but it happens to have pedals attached, you need to have a license
0: and insurance. Right. And we're seeing a lot more uh, of, of uh, these, like occasionally I'll be walking down the street and somebody will go by on a skateboard at like <laughs> the speed of a car. And not only am I worried about the guy, usually a guy on the skateboard, because it seems kind of dangerous, but I'm wondering, uh, is there any sort of uh, law about that? No,
2: we have all these things that we're using now on our roadways, those skateboards, those electric like like scooters, you know, the one leg scooters um, that we see all over the world. And they're now coming to Vancouver. Um, Those are all things that are not really covered in the Motor Vehicle Act. It's, in my opinion, one of the most outdated pieces of legislation for what it needs to cover to deal with public safety issues as they're evolving when it comes to vehicles that we use.
0: Yeah, because Vancouver is is probably a a really good city to, you know, for this kind of thing because a lot of hipsters and there's a a lot of hills and it's Mm -hmm. really expensive to live. So it's a good way to, you know, to cut down costs on your living expenses. So, I mean, what would broadly, what would you like to see the BC government do?
2: Well, I'd like to see them amend the Motor Vehicle Act um, and cover all of these different classes of sort of electric-assisted uh, vehicles that we use and identify very clearly for the public in no uncertain terms what does require insurance, what does require a license, and what doesn't. And then I would also like them to amend the insurance laws to allow ICBC to sell insurance for these things because the ones that do require insurance, you can't actually purchase an insurance policy for them.
0: Oh, that's a twist. So <laughs> So what what's going on there?
2: Well, there's no category of insurance that covers them, and because ICBC is, you know, largely controlled by uh, by the statutes uh, that exist in BC, if the government created an insurance category and in class in the Insurance Motor Vehicle Act and limitations on the types of insurance you can buy and what it covers, and, it, and essentially set out a scheme for this, they could allow these vehicles to be insured. They could allow people to comply with the law, but as it is, they don't, and ICBC doesn't do it of their own accord, and private insurers are not willing to do it.
0: Wow. Interesting. So it's totally confusing.
2: It's totally confusing because you might have something, you might have a license and you might think, okay, great. I can buy this little, you know, Vespa style scooter thing, like a Motorino XMR, but turns out you actually still can't drive it because it's required to have insurance under the law, but there are no insurance policies available for it.
0: And this is Martin Strong in for Mike on this uh, Thanksgiving Day holiday Monday. And uh, we're talking about e-bikes. Do we need more regulations for e-bikes? Should they be registered and licensed like cars? What do you think about sharing the road with motorized vehicles that fall into this gray area? Because they can be pretty vulnerable if you're in your car. Uh, Maybe you have a question. Give us a call. 604-280-9898. 280-9898. 280-9898. Uh, our guest will uh, stick around to uh, take your calls. Kyla Lee is a lawyer with Acumen Law. Uh, they specialize in driving law. So so what's the strangest case you've had uh, that's involved with, with e-bikes or these kind of scooters or skateboards?
2: I mean, I've had lots of cases of people who have suspended licenses who are probably never going to have driver's licenses again. And so they get these these e-bikes because they think that they're exempt from uh, the rules and then they modify them. Um, so they remove the pedals, they amp up the motor, they make changes to it to actually turn it into a little motorcycle and then get caught driving them on sidewalks and driving them without licenses. This is
0: very common. Right. So <laughs> Yeah, it's ingenious, but uh, (laughs) not very legal. Uh, Well, Let's go to the phones. Richard is on the line. Hi, Richard. Hi there.
3: Hey, listen, Kyla, I agree with you. I think that the Motor Vehicle Act is really, really outdated and really needs to be revised. I've had both bicyclists and skateboarders on these electronic things blow stop signs right in front of me. And I've also seen instances on seawalls and commercial sidewalks where, you know, like, you know, this is a, accidents are waiting to happen right here. But I guess rhetorically, you know, how can I protect myself as a law abiding citizen uh, on the roads in this city against this and what happens, you know, is it my word against their word? If they blow a stop sign, I think they need to be regulated. I would also remind you that in the past that in uh, in Vancouver, all bicycles were licensed. And I thought that was a really good idea because it not only created accountability, but it also cut down on the number of stolen uh, bicycles and things like this. There's so many reasons, positive reasons why the motor vehicle that lacked it needs to be updated to include these things and to, you know, there's just so many benefits. Your icb insurance of the car driver could apply to for you while you're on a bicycle, by the way, too, right. if you wanted to. And then also, but people that are driving bicycles, they need to be insured, I think, with some basic insurance.
0: Right. So I, and I think I heard a question in there, Richard, where you asked about your rights if and, you're a, a, a motorist and uh, somebody blows through a stop sign on a passenger. Yeah. Of having
3: a camera, I guess, on my vehicle. But, you know, like I feel really endangered legally and uh, liability wise in Vancouver driving around because like I let's said, hear what, had let's hear what Kyla, spe- sides, Kyla right? thinks.
0: Right yeah, thanks. Let's hear what yeah, Kyla mean, thinks. I- <laughs>
2: I think having a dash cam uh, is a good way to create a record if you're ever uh, in an accident and, and, you know, there's an issue of, of the reason why. Um, I guess, thankfully, <laughs> um ICDC's now created the no-fault system, so it doesn't really matter whose fault the collision is, you're going to get the same insurance coverage either way. Um, so, you know, that amendment has sort of alleviated some of the stress and anxiety about that. But if you're accused of committing a criminal offense while you were driving, or if, you know, it's a dispute about who's going to get a ticket as a result of something, having that dash cam record could potentially be evidence that helps you, although it can also work the other way in case you are in the wrong.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, thanks, Richard. And what about when you go to get your ICBC uh, renewed? They always ask you about uh, uh, the extra $2 million liability for the uninsured driver, and it always seems to be going up. How important is it to get that?
2: It is pretty important to get that because if you're in an accident with somebody who's uninsured, um, there's no insurance policy there to protect you. Um, and it's uh, it can really help you out um, to have uh, extra coverage. Um, you know, I often say yes to basically anything extra that ICBC is offering because although it is an extra expense at the beginning of the year, you know, I don't want to be caught in a situation where I don't have it and I'm paying out of pocket a lot more than I would have had I just accepted the coverage. Oh,
0: good advice. Uh, let's go to Dale from Camloops. What's your question for Kyla? Yeah, I uh, I like that idea of uh,
3: the uninsured because I uh, I get uninsured coverage, but my biggest peeve is when I'm you know driving down the road. So we might meet some cars going by. I'm walking um, when I'm driving down the road and I see a uh, those those electric bikes you know flying down it even say car speed no helmet or even those unicycles now or or those um it's electric kind of skateboards right with the, the one wheel by at a speed i think if i were to you know hit them i, I know it's it, it, i feel badly for them if they get injured and stuff Then it's kind of bad on me to say i'm going to sue you um for damage to my car or my trauma i mean uh any answers to that
2: Well, unfortunately, there's not really a lot of protection for that. And I think a lot of, you know, a lot of people who are using these e-bikes, who are not following the rules, who don't have insurance, who aren't wearing helmets, they don't think about the trauma that's going to come to somebody who is is involved in a collision with them. You know, they think about their safety, you know, this is my choice and my decision about what I'm doing. But it affects other people if you're in an accident with them. They don't want to feel like they were responsible, even in some way, for somebody's death or devastating injuries.
0: Right. Well, thanks, Dale. Dale and Kamloops. And he mentioned helmets. Uh, Helmets are the law. Am I correct in that?
2: Yes. It's in the Motor Vehicle Act. So they're required everywhere in BC. It used to be a municipal issue, but they, a long time ago, changed the Motor Vehicle Act to make it just mandatory across the province.
0: Right. And uh, he was talking about those unicycle skateboards, which I'm seeing more and more of. Do they? I wonder if they have a name. They've got the big tire in the middle.
2: I would not know the name of those, but <laughs> <laughs> the government should create a name for them and then regulate them so that we all have some safety expectations and some uh, some peace of mind about other people using them on the road.
0: Right. What's the strangest electric vehicle you've ever seen?
2: Oh, um, well, it wasn't a case I ever had, um, but I did read an article uh, in the U.S. about somebody who had essentially jerry-rigged a little, like, push cart uh, that they filled with booze and were riding around on that
0: (laughs) with, like, a lawnmower motor. (laughs) Uh, Oh, I like so So, like, a moving wet bar.
2: Exactly! Wow. Uh, <laughs> Points for innovation, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, but from a law standpoint, there are so many laws you're breaking.
2: <laughs> there, yes, there are many laws you're breaking, and uh, you probably wouldn't be surprised to hear, but that driver was also arrested for driving under the influence. <laughs> really,
0: what a surprise! Yeah. <laughs> right. I hope none of that liquor was open. <laughs> So, uh, Kyla Lee has been our guest, a lawyer for Acumen Law and I'll, and before I let you go, I'll ask you, what are you, uh, feeling grateful for this, this Thanksgiving?
2: You know, i uh, my grandmother passed, uh, just a couple of weeks ago and I'm just feeling very grateful for memories of Thanksgiving dinner that she would cook our whole family every year for my entire life. Um, and having those memories is just, it's really wonderful. So uh, I'm thankful for that. <laughs>
0: That's beautiful. Kyla Lee, thank you for talking to us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: And I'm Martin Strong. In for Mike. He'll be back tomorrow. Uh, he's enjoying the Thanksgiving Day holiday Monday. I hope you are too. And I hope you're thankful for a lot of stuff. Give us a call on the buzz line and tell us what you're thankful for. 604-331-2899. 2899 What are you thankful for? in 2021. Uh, Compassion clubs, the idea of them started as a way to provide cannabis for medical purposes in a safe environment to people who needed it back when it was illegal. The idea has now spread to other more toxic, illegal drugs. And with more than a thousand people dying in the first half of this year from suspected drug overdoses, It's an idea that is getting some attention. Vancouver City Council voted this past Thursday to back a push for compassion clubs to supply safer drugs to drug users in the city. And Guy Felicella is an advocate for compassion clubs on the downtown east side, and he is with me now. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving, Guy happy Thanksgiving, Martin. Thanks for having me. You're very, very welcome. So, you know, when, when I drive down Maine and Hastings, I see all the people and, uh, clearly, uh, many of them are drug users. How does a compassion club fit into those people and why is it so important?
4: Well, if you, you look at the, the situation not only in our province, but across Canada, the drug supply is continuously increasing the toxicity levels, which, um, you know, six people die every day. Um, and not just with, um, the fentanyl. Now you're dealing with benzos and other substances as well, which really has created, you know, uh, uh, an environment of desperation. Um, you, you know, people are losing hope, um, they feel stigmatized, criminalized using a loan. So the Compassion Club model, which would be a low barrier access model for people to access substances, which uh, I think is the most empowering thing is knowing what you're taking instead of um, playing Russian roulette um, every single day. And basically our drug policies are, are holding the gun.
0: Right. I was talking to Garth Mullen, and he he mentioned his sort of metaphor f- for it was you go into a bar and you order a drink and you have no idea what's in the drink, and you have to guzzle it down quickly and take off because if if uh, a cop comes in, you'll get arrested and uh, And I thought that was kind of an interesting way of looking at it. so so basically, a compassion club uh, would be able to give you pharmaceutical grade. Drugs, heroin, uh, fentanyl, whatever it is, but you know exactly what you're taking.
4: Yeah, that's that, that's the that's the idea and the purpose. It's it it's definitely you know the most empowering thing for anyone um, is knowing what they're they're receiving, knowing the dose of what they're receiving, and knowing that you, you know it's uh, safer than the illicit drug supply. If you look at our supply. Um, Right now in British Columbia, I mean, the high concentration levels of fentanyl is just astronomical, especially in in Vancouver, uh, where it's at its highest. The extreme concentrations of about 17 percent, you you know, you you can no longer uh, sit idly uh, and and allow people to continue dying. It was it was the same thing that happened in the 90s with us with unsanctioned supervised in- injection sites, which were running for months on end uh, before they were shut down, and and that was a response to people dying of HIV and AIDS and the overdose crisis in the 90s. Um, so I see the same uh, similar uh, and very familiar uh, impacts of what Dolph is doing. Uh, really, what they're doing is is are saving lives. And out of the thousand people that have received doses from Dolph, none of them have overdosed.
0: And Vancouver City Council, they they voted for it uh, uh, quite heartily. But where is the opposition coming from for this?
4: Well, I think, you know, well, I, I mean, I'm sure, you know, I, I i don't know where the police stand on it. It's, it's, you know, it's interesting when I look at, you know, how the police chiefs or other organizations support decriminalization of drugs, that still allows people to buy drugs off of the illicit market, which is, you know, there's always these concerns about organized crime. Um, So you can't, you can't support decriminalization, and then not support the Compassion Club and use the excuse that they're still continuing to buy drugs off the, the dark web or, or or off of organized crime. Nobody wants to deal with organized crime, but really what our drug policies have left us or left others with absolutely no choice, but they, they, they have to. And until we actually change um, the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act that allows... Um, pharmaceutical companies to actually make heroin instead of having it imported from Switzerland, um, then we could actually create this model where people could access it from pharmaceutical companies.
0: Yes. And you mentioned the dark web. So are people actually buying these drugs online?
4: Like worldwide? Like, yeah, like every day.
0: And is that how a lot of it comes into Vancouver through the mail?
4: Well, I mean, mail, docks, ports, you name it, borders, wherever it, I mean, you know, you, you think about it, um, it, you can't even, Canada can't even keep drugs out of the prison system. And, and believe me, even in my time in, in, in the penitentiary and in the prison system, there's oftentimes a lot more drugs in there than, than, than I'd seen in a, um, some facilities or houses in, the, in, in Vancouver, um, literally that happens. And if you actually really think about it too, which is very dangerous is that if a bad shipment ever lands into a provincial or a federal penitentiary, you could have up to 50 to 60 overdose deaths that day, just in that penitentiary, because when drugs come in, people use them. Um, and that is, uh, something that we also have to
0: look at as well. Wow. And, and, and in your experience, you've been an advocate uh For the downtown east side for a long time i mean do you do you feel like a, if compassion clubs had been part of the scene over the last ten years uh you probably know people who would still be alive
4: oh definitely I mean
0: you know we you know organized
4: crime is going to continue to do what they do. What we have to do is actually compete with that by saying, giving substance users a choice, uh, low barrier access, the safer supply thing that you hear that's in the province right now is very limited and it's contingent on uh, really if a doctor feels comfortable prescribing it to you. But then, again, it's not the drugs that people are seeking. So there's three things that you really need to have. You need to have the right drug and then you have to have um, the right route that people use it. Uh, which could be inhalation, injecting, or snorting, and then you have to have um, access if you can If you can achieve those three things, um, you will save a lot of lives not only in in this province uh, but across the country. and I think what needs to happen is the the federal government needs to to actually give Dolph an exemption to actually run this as a pilot project to start. Um, maybe we start with fifty to sixty people, and then have other organizations do research with it. I mean, the research is clear. It's like if you look at Switzerland, that's been giving out heroin since the '90s. It it's definitely changed the whole dynamics of the drug culture in
0: Switzerland. Guy Felicella is a harm reduction advocate. Uh, overcame drug addiction himself and is an advocate for Compassion Clubs. And uh, I, I can't let you go. I hope you don't mind, but it's Thanksgiving, and I've been asking people what they're thankful for. So, Guy, what what are you thankful for this Thanksgiving?
4: Well, you know, I, I mean, honestly, being brought back to life six times and uh, uh, surviving five you know, lightest bone infections. Uh, I, I'm truly grateful for all the, the non-judgmental nurses that took. Care me through the most challenging times and bringing me back to life, especially at uh, at Insight. And um, uh, that, uh, you know, is if without that, I, I wouldn't have the life that I have today. So I'm truly grateful for that.
0: The non judgmental nurses. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Guy. Thanks. Have a great day. And this is Martin Strong in for Mike on the Thanksgiving Day Holiday Monday. We've been asking people what they're thankful for on this Thanksgiving Day Monday, 2021. You can give us a call at 604 331 2899. It's our buzz line, 331 2899. And here's what the people are saying I
5: am thankful that we can, we are in a country where we can speak our peace. Reasonably freely without a dictatorship of government telling us how and what to say.
0: That is a solid thing to be thankful for because, uh, I'm also thankful that we can have an election and, uh, nobody starts talking about how it's been rigged. And, uh, and then for the next year, we have to hear people say that, uh, it, it was invalid that we can have the democratic process and the transfer of power if need be. And uh, we can't take that for granted. But it is Remembrance Day. And uh, also, according to a new poll from Research Co., the majority of Canadians... Are skeptical about the effect that the private sector would have on the, the, our healthcare system, our public healthcare system. So, does this mean we don't want places like Dr. Brian Day's Canby Surgery Center to operate? Uh, to tell us more about the poll's findings, we're joined by our friend Mario Canseco, president of Research Co. Happy Thanksgiving, Mario. Happy Thanksgiving, Martin. Great to be here with you. Yeah, great to talk to you. So 56% of Canadians say they're skeptical of private health care. So does that mean they're skeptical of the care that they would get, or they're skeptical that private health care is going to creep in and somehow destroy the public system? Well, I think there's an expectation that uh, those who would really like to see a
6: higher uh, level of support from the private system into health care... Um, believe that everything would be better. And Canadians are certainly skeptical about this. There's 56% who say, I don't think we would necessarily have access to better services or have shorter wait times if we had uh, larger investment from the private sector into healthcare. This is up five points since we last asked this question back in August of 2020. So because of the pandemic and and the added emphasis on whether the system would work better if we had more people who would not uh, have to subject themselves to running with the guidelines that we have in place right now, my expectation was that we would see a higher level of support uh, for something like this, but it's actually lower than it was a year ago.
0: Right. It's interesting because what COVID has done in, in a lot of places, it's sort of shone a light on the limitations of the healthcare system in Alberta, the number of beds and things. So you would think that, that COVID might uh, make people a little more, I, I don't know, angry about the, about the current system. Well What has happened over the past few months
6: is that the anger has been directed at people who haven 't been vaccinated. We have seen that consistently whenever we ask about vaccines, um, the fact that you have certain postponements for surgeries or for other things that you need to get done, and you can't do it because there's a lot of people who are unvaccinated taking those hospital beds. Um, what 's really interesting also is uh, there seems to be a very big regional gap. Uh, there are parts of the country where the level of concern with health care is not particularly high. But as we move to the east, you get to Quebec, you get to Atlantic Canada, and there's a far higher number of residents who are dissatisfied with the fact that they can't find a family doctor.
0: Right. And is it, is it sort of a rural-urban situation as well? Is there a, is sort of a difference there? Well, what we see is a, a lot of residents of urban areas
6: uh, relying on the walk-in clinic. And one of the benefits that we've seen from the pandemic, if we could call it a benefit, is uh, the success of e-health, you know, people who are calling a doctor, having uh, some sort of consultation on the phone, um, being able to talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about and not necessarily relying on whatever the Internet is telling them. So we've seen a higher level of satisfaction with that, particularly here in B.C., But we also see that some of the governments that actually promised that they were going to do something about family doctors, are not doing this anymore. Uh, If we go back three, four years ago, there were certain provinces where there were promises made about every single resident having access to a family doctor, and it's not happening particularly in the urban areas. So what we have is a situation where rural areas could be better served because you have fewer people who could go to a family doctor, and it's the urban areas that
0: are struggling because nobody can find a family doctor and they're going to the walking clinics when they have to. Right. So it sounds like that that not being able to find a family doctor is the number one beef that people have across the country? It is now the number one issue. And, and
6: to me, that was a little bit of a shock because I've been asking this question for years and it's usually long wait times. This is something that you experience. Uh, you have an ailment, you want to see a specialist and they tell you to come back three weeks, three months afterwards. And that has always been one of the major drawbacks of the system, and one of the things that makes Canadians dissatisfied, even though they say that they're happy with the system and they don't want to see many major changes to it. That is the number one thing. And now we see it moving more towards the idea of a shortage of doctors and nurses, which is also complicated when we think about everything that has happened throughout the course of this pandemic. If you're a young person right now trying to figure out what you want to do with your life, is nursing or is medicine something that is attractive after you've seen what happened to a lot of people who are working in this field because of the time constraints and because of the protests that we've seen outside of hospitals?
0: Interesting. Another interesting uh, uh, report from Research Co. uh, Mario Cansego. And really quickly, what are you thankful for this uh, Thanksgiving?
6: Um, I'm thankful for the sense of community that we have across the country. You know, you look at other parts that are fighting because of electoral results, because of certain things that aren't working out well. Um, We certainly have a good situation here where we can disagree, but still be respectful of each other.
0: Right. Thanks, Mario. And this is Martin Strong sitting in for Mike on the Thanksgiving Day holiday Monday. I hope you're feeling uh, very full and very thankful. Uh, What are you thankful for this year? Give us a call, 604-331-2899. Or talk about anything that you uh, are hearing on the show this morning, 604-331-2899. And you know, one thing about the COVID crisis, it's made it a lot easier to call in sick. Suddenly nobody wants to see you if you've got the sniffles or or anything. But in all seriousness, what if you don't have paid sick leave? That means losing a day's pay. And even before the onset of the pandemic, only about 4 out of 10 employers provided paid sick leave to any of their employees. But now the B.C. government will implement the right for all employees to have a minimum number of employer-paid sick days starting January 1st, becoming just the third province in Canada to do so. And David Ferry is with me now, uh, a labor economist, and uh, I thank you for being here on the Thanksgiving Monday. Thanks, David. Oh, thank you. So um, this is not written in stone yet in terms of the nuts and bolts of it. There, there, there's no set amount of days. What's the process, and and what do you expect this is the final thing is going to look like for for the number of sick days that people will get? Well, um,
5: as you know, the the government currently is um, uh, consulting. They say consulting with the public ar- around the n- the number of paid sick days. So the. There is this um, uh, survey uh, that has, has been put out um, a couple of weeks ago on asking people to respond as to, um, as to how many paid sick days uh, should be legislated coming uh, January the 1st of, uh, of, of next year. Uh, currently, on a temporary basis, there are three days of paid sick leave for COVID-related uh, uh, illness uh, leave, but the government is now committed to a permanent number of paid sick days However, um, and, but the the options are, there are three options that uh, they're surveying. One is uh, up to three days of paid sick days, up to uh, up to five days of paid sick days, and then uh, up to ten days of paid sick days. So uh, that's the only thing that uh, people are being asked to respond on. There are a lot of other aspects of a of a paid sick leave program that really need to be flushed out and. Um, and advocates around the province have been calling for um, for a number of features to a paid sick leave plan that uh, makes um, so. For example, that um, that there's no interruption in pay. That if when you wake up in the morning um, under a paid sick leave program, you should know you should know whether or not you're you're going to be paid for the day, rather than having to wait for the employer to uh, to give approval, rather than having to wait to produce a doctor's certificate. Uh, and and so and and also that there should not be um a qualifying period currently under the employment standards act for under the paid sick leave provisions of the act uh, which were instituted in, back in may um you have to have been employed by an employer for um for ninety days, which is about five months, so uh new employees would not qualify currently uh under the act uh, in addition, you would have to produce uh, uh, if if uh, your employer requested. Uh You would have to produce uh, evidence that um that uh, prove that you you were sick so these are features of the program uh, that we think uh, needs to be changed. Um, people should be automatically uh, um, uh, have uh, access to paid sick leave regardless of how long they work for an employer. That's particularly important for uh, workers in seasonal industries and occupations. Um, you know, farm workers, for example, that are seasonal, uh, temporary agency workers. Um, and uh, many kinds of uh, seasonal jobs in the hospitality industry, which are all frontline workers and uh, uh, highly exposed to to the potential for for contracting uh, sickness. So, so these are things that we think um, uh, need to be uh, addressed in in a paid sick leave uh, program uh, that the government institutes in January. Um, and we're, we're quite mystified as to why they're even considering anything less than ten days when. As we know and we learned during the federal election that um, but that both the Liberal Party and the New Democratic Party um, were, uh, made commitments that they were going to bring in for federally regulated employees um, 10 days of paid sick leave. Um, and 10 days of paid sick leave is the, con- the standard throughout most uh, advanced uh, developed countries, including places like um, Australia or New Zealand. New Zealand has... An economy and a population, uh, which is uh, very comparable to that of British Columbia. They recently introduced, um, um, they increased their paid sick days. They'd had five days of paid sick days for, for, for many years. And in, in June, July, they up, they increased it to 10 days. So the standard pretty much around the world and in, in many jur- U.S. jurisdictions is for, for 10 or more uh, paid sick days. So right. we're mystified as why they're even considering. Anything less than ten. So and you as you as you know, um, recently Isabel McKenzie, the the BC Seniors Advocate, uh, say has found that um, a high proportion of the infections in, uh, in seniors' homes, uh, uh, COVID infections, uh, was as a result of um, of care workers uh, going to work sick, and um, and many of those care workers at one time uh, had eighteen days of paid sick days until until uh, a lot of the services were, were privatized.
0: Wow. So, so I guess opposition, they feel like they that people will just use these sick days and then it's, it's sort of like giving people extra, extra time off.
5: Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a common uh, uh, kind of counter to paid sick days. But the, but the evidence is uh, from jurisdictions, uh, particularly in New York City, for example, where they uh, did some uh, analysis of the utilization of uh, paid sick days, they found that they found that most people uh, did not did not even use the the number of paid sick days they were entitled to. Right. Uh, and um, and it, I mean, you're always going to get a, a few people that are going to uh, abuse the system, right? But overwhelmingly, um, uh, people who have entitlement to paid sick days. Um, don't don't abuse it. Uh, they take what they need.
0: Well, thank you, David. David Ferry, labor economist. Uh, thanks for talking to us. You're welcome. Thank you. Nine
2: one one. Nine one one. What's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship. Ah, there was an explosion. Oh my God! The ship is sinking. I can't get out. There's water everywhere. We're going down. I've got a lock on your location. Stay with me. Hurry, hurry. Hello? Are you there?